When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Jake Cutler. Cutler straight drop. Steps up in the pocket. Hawk for a touchdown. Uncut with Jake Cutler. We've got a pretty cool guest, Mark Cuban. Thanks for having me on. Did you know that you wanted to get into business? From the time I was 10, 11 years old, I was always hustling. I want to party like a rock star the rest of my life and just have fun. Yeah, if you do it it right. Yeah, and even if you do it half wrong. Yeah, yeah, you're... (laughs) Probably more than half. You can still be fine. (laughs) Uncut with Jay Cutler, Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jonathan Charks of The Ringer, and as is often the case when the two of us record a podcast, we go in a lot of different directions here. We start in Sacramento with the coaching change that happened over the weekend, and then get into a lot of our most interesting topics so far going on in the league. Phoenix, their strong start. Portland, and a lot of other kind of situations, what we're ruminating on, what we're marinating on, the teams that have changed our perception, and plenty more. One note at the outset, there were a few volume issues on on this podcast. I think it'll square up when I've been checking it. It looks like it'll square up in the final version of the mix, but I wanted to let you know, and that might lead to some, a few words being clipped just because the detection software worked a little bit wonkily. So apologies for that, but it still should be strong. And the content of course is is absolutely there. So just wanted to note that at the outset, but it should be good. Here you go. Thank you so much for coming on. We should probably start, start this with the, uh, the topic that you wrote about this Monday morning, at the ringer, and that is the Sacramento Kings who made the decision, I believe that was on Sunday, to fire Luke Walton. And I think you focused in on something that makes a lot of sense as kind of the next decision point for Monty McNair in this front office, which is, what are you building around? Like, what is the foundation, both personnel-wise and kind of philosophically? And, you know, Alvin Gentry as the interim coach might be a part of that answer, but we honestly, we that that's like the biggest question that Monty McNair still has to work with. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's kind of the thing we always, like, everyone knows this, but I feel like it's always important to, like, boil it down. Whenever you take over a job, like, how do you define a GM? I think, like, ultimately a GM is defined by who his best player is and what his plan for that player is. And if those are the fundamental points of emphasis. And if you don't have everything else flows from that. So an example of that would be Gerson Rose Soda. Okay. He had a plan. His plan was 
Carl Towns is my guy. I'm going to turn him into a jump shooting, three-point shooting center and build from there. Now, we can get into like the weeds of that plan, how it was executed. And obviously, with Roses, there's many things going on. But fundamentally, as a GM, you have to have a plan for your best player. And so I'm looking at the Kings. They just fired their coach. And I think at this point, Luke Walton, I have no like really strong opinions about him, which is probably a bad thing after six years. He's kind of a coach, right? It's like he's pretty generic. And it really comes down to, is De'Aaron Fox your best player? And if he's your best player, what is your plan for him? And at this point, it doesn't seem clear what the plan for Fox is. Well, I think especially when he drafted Davion Mitchell. But I get the, I think Hal Burton and Fox could work together. But once you add Mitchell, it's like, okay, your plan is to put more point guards around your point guard and have a small team. And I think in a sense, they almost depowered De'Aaron Fox by drafting him. And that was kind of what my piece was about. You look at De'Aaron Fox's stats this year. At this point, I think it's more than just a shooting slump. And I say, I'm thinking De'Aaron Fox is no longer the player he was last year because of the players you have around him. And it doesn't seem very sustainable to me. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of merit to the overall thesis there. And another important consideration I always deal with in these sorts of circumstances is what is this person's connection to the person who's making decisions now? So Luke Walton was inherited by Monty McNair. So that meant Monty McNair didn't choose, he didn't choose his coach, kept him on. That might've been financial. That might've been, he wanted to see what, what Luke Walton could do. There are a lot of different reasons that could or could not have happened. And De'Aaron Fox is a little bit different because of the the contract extension. I believe McNair was the one who negotiated that, though. With max contract extensions, I often think of those as more ownership decisions rather than general manager mm-hmm. decisions because that's just the nature of how much money you're expending. And so I, it'd be interesting to kind of find that's generally never going to be public information, but if you can, can parse it. And doing the, doing the autopsy, to in a sense, on the Walton regime – I mean, a part of the story is that the Kings haven't defended. They were dead last last year. They're currently 24th in cleaning the glasses iteration of the stat. And it's also bizarre because Walton's teams previously generally had done a, a pretty decent job defending. Like in the, the trouble in Sacramento. And I try to index a team's defensive performance based on their defensive personnel. And I would say Sacramento overall well below average. I like Rashawn Holmes, but he's not the best defensive center. And generally speaking, they played small, limited, or both players at a lot of the other positions. There are exceptions, including Davion Mitchell. But that's still hard to overcome. That said, I think the biggest question here is De'Aaron Fox. And I like to start it with a basic one, which is the whole point to an extent of having a point guard uh, who is uh, your primary ball handler, is that the idea that when they're in the game, they can generate good shots for themselves and others. And converting those shots, sometimes that's not their problem. You know, like if you have bad shooters on your team, well, if, if they're setting up good shots and the guys aren't hitting them, that's not necessarily your creator's fault. But I've been lower on Fox, generally speaking. There have been some strong stretches in there. Like the part of him that I've always really liked is that he can he can push in transition, he can make teams uncomfortable that way. But the question of whether he can be the force driving a successful half-court offense, I, I'm still a little bit skeptical there. And now we're getting into this is Fox's age 24 season. Still plenty of improvement that he can make. But the less likely that answer is a yes, the harder it is to make him the focal point. 
Yeah, so I'm looking at it now. Why did they fire Dave Jerger? Was that because of the Bagley thing? It's been so long now, I've kind of forgotten. Is that why he lost, he lost the power struggle about Bagley, basically? I'm trying to—I don't remember exactly. I I, I wish I did. Yeah. Um, I think it might have it been a power struggle. I know that happened with Mike Malone, um, or I remember that that happened with Mike Malone back when that happened. So, yeah, with Dave Yeager, it— it might have been that I, I can't remember for I can't remember for sure. And also, Vlade Divac had a had a personal relationship with Luke Walton, so I think it might have been a circumstance where you it was more of a replacement rather than a firing in a decision in and of itself, and then a separate replacement. It might have been, hey, I'd rather have this guy as the coach rather than the person we have right now. Because the reason I asked is because it felt like that. The last year of Jerger, that was the best season they had with Fox. And you could see Jerger's plan. Like, we're going to run pure spread, pick, and roll. They had Collie Star the Elites at the four. They pushed the ball constantly. And I think if De'Aaron Fox is your best player, that's how you have to play, is get him out and take advantage of his speed. And I think, to go back to your question about De'Aaron Fox in the half court, I, I think he's a smart enough player that ultimately when he's in his prime in four or five years, I think he could operate within a half-court setting with other ball handlers. I think that will happen for him, but I don't think that's where he is now. And I think putting him in that kind of context now is setting him up to fail, which is basically what's happened this season. Yeah, and it's fair to argue, and I, I, I would as well, that, you know, Darren Fox shooting 24% from three, and, and importantly, 48% from two. Like, that's a real struggle that's as well. And three with average and two-point numbers that are, like, concerning you, I think. Yeah, exactly. After he'd been more in the, like, 53, 54% range over the last couple of years. And I'm glad that you brought up the last year, the last year under Yeager, because that's one of the stats that I really like. Queen the Glass has a version of this, which is, the percentage of plays that you do in the half court. And so the I, I, I bring this up a lot this year with the Toronto Raptors, but Sacramento is another excellent example of this. If it's there, there are kind of two different ways that you can do this. So one is, you know, you no matter what, you want to have the best half court offense you can. But another way to create a more efficient offense is to spend less time in the half court because basically every team is more efficient in transition. It's easier. The defense isn't set, everything else. And so that last year under Dave Yeager, and you could argue, and I would, that this is unsustainable. When Fox was on the court, the Kings played fewer than 75% of their possessions in the half court, 74.4%. That is incredibly low. Like, that is that is one of the highest marks or lowest, depending on which way you see it, I've ever seen. And then they've hovered around 79.80. So that's 5% of all the possessions when, Hawk, when Fox is on the floor that are now in the half court. And so that can lead to some of it. And you're right. That was the basically the identity of that 18-19 Kings team. And whether it was because that was unsustainable or whether it's because they changed to a coach who didn't have that as like his fundamental ethos, that isn't the case anymore. Yeah. And to me, I think sometimes which we can get into like how good is Fox actually. I think it's an interesting conversation. I think for Sacramento, the better question is if we're not building around De'Aaron Fox and who are we building around? And I guess the answer to me that would become Tyrese Halliburton. And I kind of think once they drafted Mitchell, it feels like the Fox ended. Maybe they didn't ultimately realize it at the time, but I just don't see a world in where you can have Mitchell and Fox together. And then once you draft Mitchell, you really can't trade him and get any value. So to me, either they're going to punt Davey on Mitchell and waste a pick, and that's their guy that drafted, or they're going to move Fox. I think that's like the pressure point. 
Yeah, that's a, a great point. And, you know, to tie it back to that Suns team that had that had three point guards, it doesn't necessarily like you can do that as a form of optionality of, hey, we don't know who's going to be the best of this group. Then it was it was blood. It was Bledsoe, Dragic and Isaiah Thomas, if memory serves. But what you are doing to some extent is putting the writing on the wall that, hey, at least one of you is going to be gone at some point soon. And that's a lot of pressure. And maybe that's pressure that is weighing on each of those gentlemen differently. And I I really like Tyrese Halliburton. I thought he was horrendously underdrafted. My biggest criticism of him was that I didn't know if he could be that guy, you know, the, the player who can generate those good looks. But what I liked so much about Halliburton is that he can plug the gaps basically with a lot of other things. And, and you know, guy in his early 20s, you're not going to close the door that he can never be that guy. It's just, it wasn't my he didn't have the same pop in that phase of the game that somebody like Trey Young or Luka Doncic did. And, you know, those guys were drafted high. Those guys are damn good players. But I with with Davion Mitchell, it's kind of it's, it's not the same problem because he's a, a very different player than Halliburton. And I, I wonder that to me, each of those guys is better suited being like a secondary ball handler and play finisher and everything else like that. The challenge there is, okay, if I end up being right, and there's no guarantee that I am, then you need to get that from someone else. And if it's not De'Aaron Fox, then it's somebody that's not on the roster right now. And Sacramento could be bad enough this year to have the opportunity to draft that player, but that would take a while. And they also don't have a ton of financial flexibility to, you know, like they could do, they'd have to probably do a trade rather than signing somebody through free agency to get that because they have Fox and Heald and a lot of just a lot of money on their books. So I'm really interested if let's say Monty McNair has sees this the way that you and I are interpreting that he does that it's you know, we're moving to a more of a focus on Mitchell and Halliburton, both of whom he drafted that first of all, then it's like, okay, well, what are you gonna do with Fox? But then it's also is his expectation that one of those two guys is going to be the engine? Or is his expectation that they can find it in someone else? And I'm not sure what the answer is. I I do think a Halliburton Mitchell uh, backcourt I think possibly could balance each other out pretty well. And kind of like what you're saying, what makes Halliburton so fun is he's like he can really balance out anyone. He really is a close whatever the gap you have to fill with your backcourt partner, he can kind of fill it. So I can see how a Mitchell Halliburton backcourt could fit together. But I think it's a fair question. If those guys can those guys really be the engine of an of a offense? I'm not sure. One and so I, I think and in the piece itself, I wrote. I don't know if I really emphasize this enough. Is I wouldn't have drafted Mitchell. I would have run with Fox and built around him. But I think now that they've drafted Mitchell, that ship has kind of sailed, and they got to make the best of it. So I don't even know if trading Fox is the best idea for the franchise. But I almost feel like they have to do it at this point because trade Mitchell's not going to happen. And then once you decide that, you almost have to trade Fox because there's no other way to upgrade your roster and you're kind of stuck in place. And then the question becomes, what can you trade Fox for? And I think that's a fascinating question too because I'm not really sure what his value is around the league. For a lot of the same things we're talking about, that he kind of needs to be the man. He needs a team built around him. And who really wants to do that? I don't know. Yeah, it's a a similar problem, but to a smaller degree is the one that 
the Sixers are dealing with with Ben Simmons, which is also the teams that might be interested in Fox probably don't have the things that will actually help Sacramento in the immediate. Maybe you can do something with matching salary and future draft picks. And yeah, I mean, Sacramento is at a very different place than the 76ers are, where that is significantly more palatable for them than a team with Joel Embiid that's thinking their window is now or now-ish. And for, I mean, Fox, the this is the other challenge, and you know I've I've long held the stance that teams should be a little bit more reluctant to give out max extensions to players who haven't established that they're worth it. And unfortunately, for very different reasons, the Michael Porter Jr. situation may cause some may cause some movement that direction as well. And with Fox, that's the other part of this, which again parallels the Ben Simmons thing, which is it's so much easier to move off of even a very good player when they're not on significant long-term money. Because now, not only do you need a team to like De'Aaron Fox, you need them to be able to match salary, and you need them to not have the sticker shock that after this season, they will owe De'Aaron Fox $135 million over four years. And is it possible that there is, you know, you brought up Garrison Rosas before, is it possible that there is a Garrison Rosas out there that thought that saw D'Angelo Russell's contract and went, yeah, that's fine. Of course, totally possible. But like you were saying, I don't know who that team is. And it's possible that Sacramento, if they can hold on long enough, that from what Sam Vecini has said, and I'm sure your colleague Kevin O'Connor is probably saying the same thing, is that this is a very weak point guard draft. And so maybe a team that has identified point guard as a long-term need says, well, Fox is better than we can do, and we're, we're buying low because if the Kings are selling soon, they're selling low. Maybe there's a path forward there, but that's probably not right. It's probably not this trade deadline, and that's going to create some awkwardness if I'm right. So, yeah, I was kind of thinking it out like who would make sense. So I think if you look at rebuilding teams who need a point guard, the one that jumped out to me was Houston. Uh-huh. I think they drafted Jalen Green not to be the point guard. I think they drafted Jalen Green to be like a Beal, Levine, Booker type. And obviously they benched John Wall to experiment with Ken Porter at the position. And I think Porter has talent, but I'm not sure running point is really where his future is in the NBA. So the trade I thought of first was Christian Wood for Fox. And I thought we're, I don't know if we're salary wise, but that's as two components of the trade. That makes yeah, that's an that's an interesting idea. I I mean, I love I, I'm a I'm a fan of Christian Wood. I'd be interested in how Gentry or whoever the next coach is after that would manage the Wood Holmes dynamic. Something else that could be a possibility if they're really selling love, the idea is more that they're that the Kings are scared of the long term money would be something involving Eric Gordon probably as the matching salary, and then one or more of the Rockets' higher profile like rookie scale guys. So they have these four rookie scale contracts right now. Jalen Green's not going to be included anything like that, but Shangoon, Garuba, Josh Christopher, yeah, maybe one of them gets involved in the trade. Maybe Kevin Porter Jr. If they're if the Rockets are lower on him than it sounded like they were at the start of the season. And then the other question that I've been dealing with with Houston for a long time is, what do they want to do with these? More veteran players, Gordon fits this too, but he has a bigger contract, who makes sense on the Rockets because if your goal is to be competitive, but they aren't necessarily on the right timeline, and that would be Jay Sean Tate and Daniel House. Both of those players would actually be good fits on the Kings, more as sweeteners in a deal. And there are other ways Houston could do that. You know, they could be trying to trade those guys to contenders and House is on an expiring contract. But I think there might be fertile ground there if the like the salary matching can be there and then the other huge challenge with the 
kind of two younger teams trading with each other is can they evaluate each other's talent closely enough to to make a trade that is agreeable well that goes back to i don't know like in baseball i call it the challenge trade have you heard of this yes i love the idea of challenge trades and i think nba teams should do them more often i think like looking back on it the sixers probably two years ago should have challenged traded someone ben simmons once they had butler and said this team is butler and bead we got to get Simmons out of here and stay with these two guys. I'd love to see more of those kinds of trades. The problem, of course, with a challenge trade is, like, the risk is so high. You could look very, very foolish if it turns out poorly, right? Yeah, for sure. But I do think it, it makes sense for teams in terms of once we have – it all goes back to, like, hey, once I have my top guy, if my number two guy doesn't really stay with my top guy, at some point there's going to be a clashing of clash – and we're going to have to break these two up. It happens all the time. I think NBA teams should be more proactive about that and really build teams to fit together in terms of their young core. So I'd love to see it, but yeah, as you said, it's hard to know if that's going to happen. You don't see it very often. And I do think with the Kings and the Rockets, one thing that would help is McNair was a Houston guy. And you can never discount the power of relationships to do kind of thing, right? That's a great... So that I'd helps. forgotten about that. That's a really good call. Yeah, and I mean, Rafael Stone was there. I'm, I'm, I don't know this off the, top, off the cuff, but I would believe that they have a working relationship. I would assume so, because he didn't just like more from the lawyer side. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Let's, I'll, I'll give you the choice. There are a lot of other things going on in the league. What, what is interesting you the most at this juncture? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, hmm, let me look at, let me just, I mean, there's so much going on. It's hard to know what. I think, I guess, my big question is, hmm, give me like two seconds. Let me, let me look at a, what do I want to talk about? Um, I, th- I think Portland's really interesting. I'm not sure what, right? It does feel like they're kind of, in terms of like bigger dollar out, they're kind of like, Portland's kind of an upscale Sacramento in a lot of ways, <laughs> right? With a bunch of smaller guards, and they hit a ceiling, they just fired their coach. Their GM may not be, I guess with Portland, it all depends on Olshay, right? It does feel like, I don't know much about that, but it feels, it's a weird situation. Like, are they trying to push him out? I don't so my my theory of it, and this ties in with some of the reporting that exists on the on the general managers potentially forming some sort of professional association slash union, is that Portland might be trying to get out of this for cause, meaning that they don't have to pay Olshay. And I mean that's a huge financial thing if they can if they could pull it up. I'm not sure that they can. I don't know the specifics of the circumstance, but part of the reason for me why Portland is such a significant situation league wide is typically like you have these audience of one situations where you know a single person's decision making whether it's rational or irrational is the the only thing that matters and typically in the nba that's an owner you know that's the okay they're they're the ones who make a lot of these decisions even though you have a general manager it's the owner that like if it's a star level trade the owner has to green light it and i mean the reporting that's out there about russell westbrook going to ted leonsis is a good reminder of that but in portland the audience of one is damian lillard and with Lillard, it gets into this fundamental question of what does he want for the next three to four years? And there isn't a right or wrong answer there. It's just as long as he's true to himself. And so if Lillard is, wants to stay in Portland, that has been everything that he said publicly over time, and he wants to see what they can do, more power to him, fully support it. 
But in my opinion, and this might be coming, be becoming his opinion, you're not going to be relevant for title contention there. And yes, it's true that the Portland Trailblazers did make the Western Conference Finals once, but they made one of the easier roads to the Conference Finals in modern history and then got waxed by a still injured Warriors team. Now, the Warriors were talented, but they still got waxed. So it's like, is there a path? And there isn't a path for me for Portland to change that fate because they're simultaneously too good to get like a game-changing young guy, and they're also not good enough to have it be like a small internal improvement, and they don't have the financial flexibility to do, let's say, what Phoenix did, and I'll, maybe we'll talk about the Suns in a beat. But, so, for Willard, like, if his if his thing is like, hey, I want to, like, at some point in my career, I want to be on a team that has a chance to at least, you know, make some noise and, and be in contention. He's 31 now. Like, he can do that too. And But m- my big question is, we have no, like, I mean, basically everything Lord has said publicly is that he wants to stay in Portland and he could be that way for the rest of his career. That'd be great. But if that changes, when that changes rel- in the league calendar is so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, would, I think it's interesting to compare him to Bradley Beal. And I think they've been clumped together for a while now because those have been the two targets for Philly. And I think the difference is, is basically Beal is getting his dang time now. I think every elite player at some point in their career wants to be, and it's like they should be a piece of a team. The team should be built around them. They should explore the limits of their game and kind of have that like three to four year window where they're the main guy. Everything goes through them. The franchise revolves around them and they get to push their limits as a player. I think Beal was not in Dame's position because this is really the first season where Beal's getting that opportunity because he was drafted behind John Wall. It was Wall from that whole deck, basically. And then Russ came in, and obviously, pretty much, whatever team Russ is on, it becomes Russ P. So that's just who Russ is, right? So now those two guys are gone, and now Beal gets his own team. And I don't think Beal was thinking, I've got to win a title next season. He pretty much explicitly said that. I think that only happens after you've been the guy for a long time. And then it's like, what's next? I think if if you're the guy for a long time and you win a ring in your city like Dirk and Kobe, it's like, you know what, I've won my ring. I'm the guy. I'm very comfortable. I can play out the rest of my career here and set up my post-career life, and it's all good. But I think if you're the guy who don't win, eventually it becomes, okay, what's the next thing as my career wraps up is going for a ring? I think, for example, that's where, like, Chris Bosh. It's almost like, you know, you kind of have to have your young man phase where you're, like, so your oath, kind of. I think as a player, that's important, too. I think now Dane has done that. So my expectation is at some point in the next year or two, he's going to decide, I've done all I can do here. I want a new challenge. It's not going to, there's no way to go from A to B at this spot. And I do expect at some point, I think it's fair to assume he will leave eventually. And then you're right. It's all about his timetable. But when he decides, has so many dominoes for the rest of the league, it's pretty fascinating. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a great point, And it's, in some ways hard to discuss because it depends on an individual person's judgment and we only have limited public comments to to assess it. But I, I think you're right on the money in terms of what his thought process could be at some point in the future. One other, I, it, it, I understand why, especially when you consider their relevance and star power that, you know, the Lakers troubles have been really 
have been very prominent, but the Phoenix Suns have not lost the game in the month of November. And we are currently recording this on November 22nd. And there is a possibility, I would say definitely not a probability, considering they'd have to beat both the Nets and the Warriors, that the Suns win every game in the month of uh, month of November. And that is an incredible story when you consider that they, you know, just made the NBA Finals last year. Yeah, I mean, they've been great. I want to give a shout-out to Frank Kaminsky. That was amazing when he had, like, 30 points in that game. Yeah. That was really cool to see Frank the Tank. Was, oh, yeah, by the way, I used to be I was the best player in the Final Four one year. And I think he's hurt now. He's a third-string center. But that was cool. Like, even the end of their bench, it's just so well put together, this team, that you can be out. Really, they're out their top. They were out, like, their top three centers because Dario Sarch not all season. And they're like, you know, here's our four-string center. Let's just put him in those for 30 points and beat the, the Blazers by himself, basically. That was awesome. And, I, yeah, I think Suns-Warriors, that's going to be, like, one of the early games of the year. Like, it really does feel like those two teams have separate West half. Yeah, and Phoenix is just, it's year two with Chris Paul. And it's just, like, it's one of those things where it's just so rare when all of your best players can be the best version of themselves together. And, like, no one is kind of eating off each other. And, like, we're seeing the best version of Chris Paul. I mean, he's a little older now. He's the best version. But the best version is the best Devin Booker, the best version of Mikhail Bridges. And, like, the only thing we were worried about was DeAndre Agan's contract. And he seems to have, which props to him, that he's really integrated himself on the team and not kind of derail things, which is a really big he should have been paid this summer, but he wasn't. But yeah, like, that's all a two-way team. Like, and when you, when you have those things going together, you can roll a lot of bad NBA teams doing that. Right, and there, it's fair to, to mention that the Suns have had some very positive luck here. Like they've faced a lot of weak opponents and some of the stronger opponents that they faced have been without their best players. Like they beat Dallas twice. Luka didn't play in either of those games. They beat Denver and Jokic didn't play in that game. So yeah, you made it easier, but especially when it's beating everybody. And as you mentioned, some of uh, a portion of that stretch, four or five games of memory serves were without Aiden, who's one of their better players. And the Suns also, it's, I think that the the Suns, you know, winning, I believe it now it's 12 games in a row and doing so at a time when, you know, preliminarily the top of the West doesn't look as strong as it was. And part of the reason why many, including me, discounted Phoenix's chances of repeating as Western Conference champions was the idea that they were a very good team, but they benefited from a lot of relative health where they were, you know, they, they, they probably would have lost to the Lakers if Anthony Davis hadn't gotten hurt again. And then they had they had some they had health related benefits against their other opposition too, including Denver with Jamal Murray being out and everything else. And so it was the idea that, well, they were the best they were the healthiest and they were the best of weak crop. And the Warriors are their own are their own thing, and they've also had some weaker opposition. But the Lakers struggles, the uncertainty with Kawhi, the uncertainty with Jamal Murray. Like I, I think that the even even without the win streak, the Suns being the team that they were puts them in a pretty good position. Yeah, it's funny. Like oh, they have not, they beat teams with injury risks, and it's like it's true they did. But all that's kind of like you said. All those teams still have injury concerns, right? Right. Clippers, Nuggets, Lakers—they're all still injured, and who knows where they'll be? Very cold. I think too, 
when they buy back, the bridge will be back to the Clippers. But it's a little more complicated than that because getting Kawhi back means everybody else changes their role, right? And that can be done, but that's, that takes time to reintegrate guys into their new roles. And we'll see if Kawhi can be Kawhi right away. So it just, it's hard to know what those teams are going to be in six months, whereas we know what the Suns will be if they're healthy. And I think what's interesting about them, too, with if you saw Phoenix really ended up being basically they were at their worst when somebody had a big man who could out big who could beat up eight right Anthony Davis where he got and obviously Giannis in the finals but there's no one like that in the West besides Anthony Davis who can really outplay DeAndre Ayton that's what kind of makes some Warriors really interesting and I'm not exactly sure how that would go I think ultimately I would take Steph Hall that's a game where like both those teams seem to be matched up pretty evenly and it should be a really fun game I think right after Thanksgiving yeah it, yeah it is it is right after Thanksgiving should be a ton of fun and it will also be difficult i mean so the the part of the fun there is that the suns had this run last year and the warriors were down and when the warriors were were up for their run the suns weren't really around either so there there is some individual experience and the teams do play in the same division so they have some regular season stuff but the i mean there'll be a lot of a lot of players that are thrown into a very different situation there and that also brings a fascinating question, which is how do these coaches want to handle those matchups? So for Steve Kerr, that's who do you want to put on Booker? Who do you want to put on CP? But also, what is your concept? Do you want to go to a switch-heavy system and some, some, you're going to have them find some mismatches? And then for the Suns, are you going to have Mikhail Bridges lock and trail Steph Curry? Maybe, probably, but are they going to go to a different approach? And so we're going to learn a lot about Monty Williams because both of these teams are unusual tactical challenges. And so we'll get to see how the coaches respond to that. I'm curious as a warrior, someone's been on the Warriors a lot. I've always had the sense that Steph and Chris Paul, like Steph beating Chris Paul. Is that fair to say? Yes. Back to the Clippers Warriors days. It is. I I don't know that it's... There, there's personal tension there, but I think the idea that when Steph was kind of coming up, Chris Paul was the biggest point guard on the block, and not not biggest in terms of stature, obviously, but in, he was the you know the best the best point guard sized player in the NBA when when Steph was coming up, and so I sure he I'm sure he relishes that. And the Warriors and Clippers were rivals for a few years there, so there was a little bit of extra relish on that. I don't know of any personal animosity between those two. Steph doesn't really have that with too many with too many people. Chris Paul. Does. That's just the nature of him, and I, I love Chris Paul. It's just part of part of who he is. For sure. <laughs> and but I don't I don't think there's any like secret tunnel stuff between those two guys. Paul and the Clippers. He played Chris Paul in the Rockets. Right. It's like it's almost like Chris Paul is like endlessly searching to find somebody to beat the Warriors with. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fascinating. It's, I hadn't pieced all of that together, but you're right. Yeah, it's, this if it happens, if they get to like a playoff series, it'd be the third different uniform because yeah, Paul and the Paul and the Hornets Pels didn't didn't ever uh, the the Warriors weren't good enough then to be relevant. And yeah, I mean, so the Suns are, I think, just an absolutely fascinating, important story. And the other kind of element that I deal with a lot in the early part of a season is what of the teams that are having, you know, having a little bit of a stumble? What of that is real and what of that is is temporary? And so that could be in terms of like, I think it's easiest in a circumstance like the Bucks, where it's like, oh, a bunch of your best players are out at the same time. Sure, like there is a reason to believe that the the full strength Bucks or close to full strength will be the full strength Bucks. Like that, that's just the way it can go. But 
I'm really interested in in Dallas, who Dallas is over 500, but they also are being outscored overall um, using Clean the Glasses debt rating. I did a whole podcast with Caitlin Cooper about Indiana, which I think is interesting. The New York starting fives issues are are potentially significant. And so it's just a a really, it's such a pivotal time in the season. Now, it's not a good time for making broad pronouncements because we're so early, but this isn't the, like the time for people to freak out, and, and except for very specific circumstances. But that time is coming pretty soon. Yeah, and it's always injuries, right? Yembe season is so long. It's like it's easy to forget that when you're in the kind of the weeds of it, and it's like what's happening tonight, what's happening tomorrow. But it's like they still got six more months. Is it six more months for the playoffs? I mean, five, right? That's a long time. And then, like with Dallas, Luka goes, they had a really easy schedule to start of the year to kind of stumble along, beat a bunch of bad teams. And right when they start playing good teams, Luka goes down, which means I feel like, like I live in Dallas and the Mavs a bunch and I still don't have a great deal for them because I remember thinking, okay, they're going to play the Suns twice and the Clippers twice. We're really going to see Luka goes down. Kind of like, what do these games even mean? Who knows? They're playing a whole different style on Luka on the floor. Hard to say. Yeah, and injuries kind of like can clarify or kind of cloud it even more. I look at like Atlanta and Boston. They both started off some of the game. And I love DeAndre Hunter, but it does feel almost feel like without him out there, it's like and all the other guys have more room to breathe because they almost had too many plays. They had my boss, Bill Simmons, he called it the too many guys problem. And it felt like the Hawks had too many guys problem. And then one injury almost like made it easier for them. It kind of clarified roles for everybody else. But back eventually and we'll see what they end up doing yeah that is that is significant and the hawks had that long losing streak and then they've had a, a winning streak after that including beating some of the injured teams we were just talking about but yeah i mean and you also run into this challenge with a lot of them of it's the idea of okay confirmation bias or you know leaning on your prayers and and oftentimes that's a smart thing to do you know like for example the bucks where it's like okay we we can use context here yes they're barely over 500 but there's something that we know but then there are also circumstances and i would say that the pre injury riddled calves were one of these where i had to reevaluate my prior and basically i thought they were going to be worse defensively than they were and they were just a capable defensive team and the offense was hit or miss depending on the game and it's such a difficult balancing act that i think is also part of what makes our job so fun is trying to figure out is this real or is this temporary yeah i think there's enough time now like at this point i'm pretty sure chicago and washington are good teams chicago especially like And then it's like, okay, once you know what a team is, and all of a sudden one injury can just change what a team is. And sometimes we don't realize how valuable a player is going to be till he's out. You can, you bring up the box. One thing I am kind of curious about is this whole Brooke Lopez thing. It's been like oddly under talking about there with so many injuries, but a guy his size at his age has a mysterious back injury kept him out tired. I do wonder about that. Like, when are we going to see him again? And when we do, what's it going to look like? Because obviously, that's kind of it. it. There's no going back from that. Like, no pun intended. Well, and it's it's not only that, but it's how the reliability becomes a huge question. So it's true that one of the options is to play Giannis more at center, but then you need the rest of your roster to make sense with that concept, which I would say losing PJ Tucker hurts that, you know, are you going to play mm-hmm. Grayson Allen and DiVincenzo together when DiVincenzo comes back? Another weird injury that we have heard basically nothing on for a while now. And 
it that is a real concern because when a team and almost every NBA team, this isn't a Bucks specific criticism. It's basically every team that is that has existed. When a team needs basically all of their key guys to be healthy in order to be dangerous, to be their most dangerous, then everybody's health matters. And the Bucks do not have a Brook Lopez replacement. And unfortunately, his twin brother is playing somewhere else. Maybe at some point, his twin brother would have a buyout and potentially go. And not, not that Robin is as good as Brook, but that could be because one of the weirdest parts for the Bucks is they can't. I'm not even saying like run a discount version of Brook. It's that they the only other rim protector that I trust on their roster is their starting power forward, which is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, to kind of bring it all, all the way back around, you're talking about reliability, and that's what makes Porzingis such a difficult thing for the Mavs is because Porzingis needs a very specific ecosystem around for work. But then you can never count on him. So you built this whole thing to, to accommodate him. But he's just out randomly for like five games of back tightness. And now you got to get a whole new setup going in. And, and then it's like, okay, now we have to change the whole system up for guys in and out of the lineup all the time. It makes it very, very difficult to get any consistency. And I think like, and this goes back to the whole like, you got to find one player to build around. So like for the Pacers, the Pacers don't have that one player to really build around, which means they need all of their guys to be healthy at the same time. But that's just difficult, right? Like, they've been waiting on TJ Warren for almost two years now. And when you need, when you have no star and no, like, easy roles for anybody else to line up in, that means you're going to have to have five or six guys all in their prime, all healthy, rolling. And, like, Indiana's been the last two years, someone's always hurt. Well, the reality is someone probably is always going to hurt in the NBA. Like, people don't understand. It's not the NFL, but it's plenty physical. It's a long season. These guys get beat up someone's in the regular season. So it's very hard when you don't have one guy and role players around them, but you have five decent players for to be, to be consistent. Yeah, I, I, I think that's extremely important. And it's also, it, we, we talk a lot about how stars are irreplaceable, but especially if it's wings, important starters can also be really difficult to replace. And that's, you know, I think we're seeing that with TJ Warren in Indiana. We're seeing that kind of a, a, around the league. And then, you know, like if you, you, can, you can build a, a deep enough roster where you can kind of fill some gaps and then... That's, you know, going back to the Suns, that's an impressive thing for them about playing those games without Aiton. But yeah, it's, I'm going to be, I'm so excited to see where this next month or so goes because, you know, what, what of these teams that have kind of stumbled to start the season, as you put it, like Boston and, and Atlanta, which of them can make their way back into the conversation? And then which of them just kind of get defined by the stumble? And that happens. And be, it's the reminder that, you know, we're not playing in a simulation. And just because a team has a lot of talent, that doesn't always guarantee that it works out. And sometimes a team that doesn't have a ton of talent, it does work out. Like those, the duality of that, it's more prevalent over a 10 game section of a season, but it can be over a full season as well. Yeah. And I think it's, it's fun to see the East for once be deeper and more competitive. Like we waited, what, like 20 years for this? basically yeah but it finally happened the worm has finally turned and you look at the east standing and i would say the only teams who if they miss the play-in game or like it's all good is detroit and orlando so there's 13 teams for 10 spots and it's kind of hard to the one thing about the play-in games it's kind of hard to lie to yourself about where you are if you finish 12 right like okay we're not very good I yeah, like oh, we were we effort. were so close to making it into we were so close to making it into the thing where we'd have an outside chance of making it into the actual <laughs> playoffs. 
Yeah, right. And so, okay, if we're not even going to make the top 10 seed, it's time to reevaluate where we are. And that's the other part of it, too. I, I think, like, Indiana. And I'm, really, I'm really bummed for Toronto. I think that's another team where I wonder if the shoe is going to drop. I'm really, really curious to see what OG Pascal Barnes looks like. And if that doesn't work, it says Pascal. I think Pascal actually becomes the odd man out there out of OG and Barnes. And then that becomes a big domino. It's like, I think Pascal Siakam on the right team. We saw him in turn four, how valuable he could be as not the primary guy. That becomes on play now. Yeah, it's going to be really, really fun. Uh, anything else you want to discuss? Uh, we're, we're right about that time. Okay, let's talk about Mounds real quick. Like, okay. What's your big picture sense from the outside about Luka KP? Is this going to work? Do they got to break it up? Where do you land on that? I, If the goal is to be a consistent championship contender, I don't trust Porzingis enough. I don't think he's good enough as a player, but also, as you brought up, the reliability to be that guy. I, I think some of Luka's struggles to start the season, those are small sample size. Those are anomalous. I, I believe in him as a player. And we'll see how the kid stuff works out. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very cognizant of the defensive philosophy and the, you know, the the shots that you're taking and everything else like that. But I, if I, if I had to make a decision right now, I don't think Porzingis. If we're talking about the full, the full thing in terms of his skill set, his availability, and everything else, I don't think he can be the second best player on a title team unless everything goes right. Yeah, that's kind of where most people in Dallas have lined up on. But then it goes like, where would you trade him? Who would even want? Him? Well, and and what's the Dallas has tried a couple of times now. Like, how how in the world do you get another number two? Like they they tried to you know tried to get Kyle Lowry in free agency. He spurned them to go other places. Like you like. You and they, you know, ostensibly were keeping cap space open. Maybe they're interested in Giannis. Like getting getting number ones is really difficult. Getting number twos is also really difficult. Yeah, I think that's one of the things. I think that, like I'm really excited about with Charlotte. I've always been in those two pieces together. I feel like Dallas. I don't know the number two for what it's going to look like. Who that's going to be? It's a pretty good question. We'll see what Nico Harrison thinks and what he's going to do. Because I have no idea at this point. Yeah, yeah. I think that I think that's fair. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Thanks again to Jonathan Charks for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at The Ringer, and you can also, of course, follow him on Twitter at Jonathan Charks, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-T-J-A-R-K-S. Love talking with him, and special connection, of course, for those of us with long ties to Real GM. Jonathan and I have known each other for a long time now, and I've been such a big fan of his work since we worked together, and it's so much fun to talk with him whenever we get the chance If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. You can also help other people find the show by word of mouth. But the single most important thing you can do is subscribe and download every episode. Whatever podcast player you use, whether it's Spotify, Apple, wherever you want to go, subscribing really helps because it'll just pop into your inbox and Real GM Radio will never come out on a specific day of the week. There's no pattern to get into. It's just when it comes in. So subscribing, it comes in there for you and helps us out a lot too, of course. You can also check out my my other work, Dunked On, Dunked On Prime, still going strong. Nate and I recording five days a week, actually technically two public episodes. And then the rest of it is on Dunked On Prime. If you want to do total access, there's a great Discord community there as well. You can also check out my written work at The Athletic. I have a bunch of things in the works right now, some collaborative, some solo, and those should be coming out probably after the holiday. I'm guessing we'll have a little bit of a, a, little bit of a quiet time now going around Thanksgiving. And 
If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise, and I will try to respond, but I don't guarantee that, but I do promise that I will read it. I do that every day. And since this is the week of Thanksgiving, at least for for the American listeners, listeners among this group, I wanted to appreciate not only, of course, all of you for listening, but also everybody who helps make this show a possibility, everyone who helps make Real GM Radio and everything else I do, my life's work is really fantastic, and that's the people at Podcast One, of course, Real GM, especially Chris Reyna, who has been one of my biggest supporters, also one of my best bosses for over a decade now, which is truly incredible, and everybody at, at both of those entities for, for doing the work that it takes to make a podcast great, and of course, everybody that I deal with professionally, but in many ways, most importantly, you, the listeners, because that's how this is possible. Having enough people who are interested makes it so that we can keep this thing going. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. lifestyle depends on quality sleep and sleep number is here to help you sleep more efficiently sleep efficiency is the amount of restful sleep you have at night and is a key part of your overall health here are some tips to help you get the most efficient sleep possible reduce caffeine consumption before noon and limit late night alcohol get regular exercise during the day which helps you feel tired in the evening and keep track of your sleep health with data from your sleep number 360 smart bed sleepers who routinely use their sleep number 360 smart bed features get almost 100 hours more proven quality sleep per year With that much extra energy, you could get more quality family time, volunteer at a meaningful charity, or exercise, meditate, and reconnect with nature. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep, which starts with Sleep Number Adjustability. It's time for Sleep Number's ultimate sleep number event. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 Limited Edition Smart Bed, plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com slash podcast one for details.